Hello, welcome to Foot Guns. It is Wednesday, June 15th. Uh, it's Wasabi and Hal. And today I'm super excited. Um, we have a guest, Guillaume Lambert, who is um, probably one of the, the most uh, interesting voices that I've read uh, writing about uh, Uniswap V3 and how to optimize um, doing uh, liquidity provision and has some of the kind of like most clear teaching that I've seen on the subject. Um, so I'm really excited to, to get into that. And not only that, but you are working on a protocol, Panic Optic Options, which is kind of built on top of Uniswap V3 and extends it uh, even further. So really excited uh, to be chatting with you today and uh, looking forward to, to our talk. Sure, likewise. Yeah, glad for the uh, happy uh, to, uh, thanks for the invitation. And yeah, looking forward to chat a little bit about uh, Uniswap V3. So. Let's see. I don't know. Let's. It's it's a crazy day. Crypto is going nuts. So you know we we're gonna get this out pretty you know, just in time. So I wanted to start like, what are you doing in crypto now? Do you have a view on like where we are in the market or what's what is happening? What is happening right now? Yeah. So I think the last few weeks, I guess even last day was pretty turbulent. I don't think we are at the end of it. Yet, because this is more of a macro type of event. So, again, regular stocks, bond markets, whole countries have trouble with their balance sheet. So, I don't think that it's a, a problem that's systemic or only limited to crypto. But yes, I, I, I think that we'll, we're along for the ride. And then we'll have to kind of weather the storm till everything else uh, stabilizes. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, okay, and so and we'll get into some more kind of big picture thoughts about about crypto towards the end. But let's um, let's start with this. I know you have a background in uh, physics, and uh, Hal does also. So you may veer off into the realm of physics, and I'll you'll find myself uh, keeping my mouth shut if you start talking about those topics. But like, what um what in your background kind of like got you interested in, in crypto and, and drew you to the uni Uniswap uh, E3 side of things? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I can talk about my background and I try to kind of create a story here of how I came to be now kind of working almost full time in crypto. So again, I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor in applied physics at Cornell University. So I've been going through the regular route of getting a undergraduate degree, undergraduate degree PhD, postdocs, and a faculty position. And overall, I've always been kind of at the forefront of research in both my uh, kind of postdocs and also my uh, PhD. Uh, the idea is, so for instance, my um, um, in my current lab, we use uh, CRISPR instead of bacteria, and we try to create uh, genetic circuits. And uh, I've worked with uh, disease diagnostics. I've worked with microfluidics. So overall, I'm always kind of trying to be at the forefront of research and studying whatever is interesting to me. And, and now, I guess, uh, I've been a big uh, user of DeFi from, I guess, 2017. Uh, and then, uh, again, big user of, of uh, MakerDAO. I had some vaults that got liquidated during the 2018 bear markets. Uh, and then I, I kind of stayed on the sidelines for, uh, for DeFi summer. But I came back, I guess, over um, the past year and a half, especially since Uniswap v3 launched. And again, um, the reason why I'm so passionate about uh, Uniswap v3 is that I myself want to be successful in my own LPing. So I was doing LPing in Uni v2, and it's it's a little bit more passive there. But then when Uniswap v3 launched, I was very excited to see the possibilities of what again this brought uh, forward. We can talk about the protocol a little bit more. But there's one key observation that helped me quite a bit in my LPing is that 
providing liquidity in Uniswap is actually very similar to selling options. Uh, you can sell a covered call, for instance, or a cash secured put. So this act of selling an option is actually uh, a, a kind of distinct way of managing funds or managing risk than just buying and holding a token. So this on its own uh, was very intriguing and interesting to me. You can choose a range. You can choose some type of uh, directional bias to your position. And again, if you approach it in terms of setting options, then you can have different strategies that are opening up to you as opposed to just doing it a bit more passively, perhaps, where you have uh, in Uniswap V2 deposit funds, you wait. Now with, with Uniswap V3, the complexity, the richness, and maybe the reward that you get at the end of the <laughs> at the end of the block when you're done with your position, then that's kind of what makes it exciting to me. Yeah, so I, I'm not sure exactly how in deep detail we should go on this because we have, you know, in our in our audience, we have kind of like crypto degens, but we also have people that are uh, kind of getting into crypto or maybe like in TradFi who are like dipping a toe in, in crypto. Um, so I'm not sure, like I've, I've been LPing Uniswap V3 for a while and, you know, I know how to use it, but I'm not sure I totally like understand it or know how to consistently make money with it. So I don't know how, how, uh, what kind of level we should calibrate, but let's, I don't, for the people that are listening and want to get into it, what, like, can you give just a quick, um, thumbnail of how LPing works and like the V2 paradigm versus the V3 paradigm. Yeah, yeah, sure. So again, uh, Uniswap and most kind of AMMs, automated market making or market makers, what they brought uh, to the table was this very easy way of swapping between assets. Again, on the Uniswap interface, you have token A and token B. You don't have to worry about limit orders, stop losses or anything else. You just, I want to swap token A for token B. Some magic happens in the background and you get what you ask for. So this on its own uh, is, again, a bit more revolutionary compared to what you have uh, in TradFi. But also it brought to the table everybody that wanted to act as a market maker. Again, market making in TradFi is highly competitive. You have high frequency trading firms that are constantly kind of managing their order books. And the small little retail user like you and, e, you and me cannot necessarily uh, um, participate. But now with Uniswap, it's very easy to be a liquidity provider. You just have to lock funds into the, the pools and do it in a way that, again, is somewhat more uh, simple. You deposit funds. The market makers would normally accumulate fees by the trading activity. You do the same thing in Uniswap V2, and that enables you to, again, collect or generate a yield on your position. So this on its own is a, a somewhat simple um, process. And again, Uniswap V2 and all of its clones have had quite a bit of success over the past few years. And I don't think the Uniswap V2-like model is, uh, is, is, uh, is going to leave us or is going to be gone. But then again, with this simplicity, perhaps, comes uh, not as much uh, freedom as to how you can manage your positions. And that's why maybe where Uniswap V3 comes in and makes it a little bit more e useful and easy. So uh, not easy, but more useful and more uh, you can be more strategic in your uh, your position. So again, if you're a user of Uniswap V2 versus a user of Uniswap V3, uh, you don't care what happens in the background when you swap. You get token A for token B. That's fine. But in the background, this is where the innovation of Uniswap V3 comes in. Uh, with Uniswap V3, you're able to specify a range at which your liquidity is going to be active. 
if you go back to Uniswap V2, it was for all possible prices. So we have a pool that's ETH stablecoin, for instance. You are providing liquidity from the price from zero to infinity and anything in between. Any price that is possible, again, within the contract, you provide liquidity for it. So uh, that in some ways is great because you don't have to manage it. But on the other hand, it makes the protocol not as capital efficient as it could be. So that's where Uniswap V3 comes in. You can specify a range and say with, again, this ETH stablecoin pair, I want my uh, my funds or my money to work between the prices of, say, 500 to $1,500. So it's only when the price of the asset is between that range that you accumulate fee. And you can be very wide. Again, 50, 500 to 1500 You can be still from uh, one cent to a million dollars. Or you can be way, way, way uh, larger, which is uh, zero to infinity. And that would replicate what you have in Uniswap V2. But because now you can be any, any position that's uh, narrower than from zero to infinity, you are kind of generating a better yield because you're concentrating your liquidity and then you're kind of beating the, the same strategy that you would get on Uniswap V2. So it goes uh, uh, in one way. So if you have a predefined range, it's more capital efficient. You can go to the other extreme, which is going to be very, very narrow. For instance, plus or minus 1% or even less, plus or minus 0.5% of uh, the position. So it can be between the prices of 1000 and $1,005. So this is extremely small, but at the same time, your liquidity is concentrated to a very high level. And if the price does cross uh, that range, then you can accumulate again up to several thousand times more fees than we would do in Uniswap V2. So this interplay between the range, the centering of where the range is with the current price and the freedom you have to choose with where your liquidity is deployed kind of makes Uniswap V3 again a, a more perhaps complex protocol, but also it can generate yields that are slightly higher than just the V2, uh, slight, uh, slightly more passive. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the the thing about Uniswap V3 is that it's when you are, if you have an extremely tight range, like I've, I've played around with, you know, just having a range that's one tick. So that's like, you know, half a percentage point or the smallest possible range. The, the smaller your range, the more swap fees that you're getting when the price is within your range. Um, but then as soon as it gets out, you stop earning those fees, right? So it's always this optimization between trying to maximize your fees when you are in range and then, but also not wanting to rebalance too often because especially like on Ethereum, you know, you're paying something like 50 or hundred or more, depending on the gas cost to, uh, remove your liquidity and, and move it to the next range, right? So it's almost like uh, if, if you're trying to do this kind of actively, I found it's almost like trying to chase some, you know, squirrel that keeps running away from you and you get closer to it and it, it uh, just kind of like slips out of your grasp. So it can be like extremely, uh, but those fees when they are in range, it's so, it's so juicy, right? So how do you, how do you kind of optimize between getting the most fees when you're in range and finding something that you can kind of ride with and and not have to to uh constantly get blown out of your range yeah yeah sure so um one key uh point or one key feature of uniswap v3 positions is that the range that you choose determines sometime some type of timeline 
if you're uh, very narrowly defined, again, as you mentioned, one tick wide, which is sometimes like half a percent in, uh, in range, that corresponds to being in range with for a certain time. It's about 15 minutes. So if you start with a position that's in range, on average, due to the math and the models that you use to price assets, you say within 15 minutes, you'll be out of range. You can come back perhaps, but at the end of the day, after one day, there's more likelihood than not that you'll be out of range. So that's why you have to choose your range or your width of your position in a way that kind of matches your, your timeline. If you're plus or minus 10%, for instance, that corresponds to a seven days timeline. Again, if you start in the middle, uh, I guess one standard deviation away from that starting point means that with 68% of the time, you'll be within that range after one week, if it's plus or minus 10%. Uh, and if it's wider, for instance, 40%, 50% could be one month. So at the end of the day, it's all up to you. If you want to be extremely active, you can use a very narrow range. So every day you balance or every few hours. If you want to be pa passive, you can also have a much wider range and could be plus or minus 2x. So you go from current price of, say, 1,000 from, from 500 to 2,000. That's a plus or minus 100%. In theory, this should be uh, a good for a few months worth of uh random price moves. And again, th th my background as a physicist, my background as a, again, um, to model real physical phenomenon, you can use the same models, the same math and same kind of formalism to model price movements. And it's just me kind of solving the equations more or less. But at the end of the day, the fact that you can tune your range tells you about how frequently on average you'll have to rebalance. Yeah, so someone could, if they wanted to, go find price history data for you know whatever their favorite pair of tokens are, and you know it'd be it'd be easiest to do on something like Ethereum Bitcoin or Ethereum USD or Ethereum Dollar, just because that's easier to find. But then you could just plot out you know the 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 close you know of every single day in in a histogram and then you can look at the width of that right and then and then adjust your univ3 position around that width uh and the odds of it staying in that range you know depend on how many days in history it was out of that range but then of course anything could happen right <laughs> still exactly so this is again uh, the, the exercise you're describing is uh extracting the volatility of an asset it's the uh, if you do it with traditional finance, you have to trust perhaps the uh, the brokerage firm or whoever you get your data from to give you that uh, data. The cool thing about again blockchain is that it's publicly available. You can spin up your own node or even uh, through Infura, you can scrape that data yourself and very easily plot even block by block or like minute by minute the price of any asset, and that allows you to kind of extract these volatility measurements. So at the end of the day, I think the fact that it's blockchain all in the open, it's easier to extract the volatilities of these assets than it is in traditional finance. But at the end of the day, this is exactly what you have to kind of take into consideration. Some assets are very volatile. Uh, some assets are very stable. Again, the BTC ETH are stable, uh, but then they still have a, a volatility, that's, volatility that's very high compared to traditional assets. But if you go to the other end of the spectrum, the Shiba Inus, the Ribbon tokens, even the the ETH Luna during the the ETH Luna pool during the the crash of a few weeks ago, these uh, assets have volatilities which are in the thousands of percent per year. That means that uh, the model tells you that this asset can go 10x or in both direction after a year. And again, this is information you can get. This is information that can guide which one, which of those pools you participate to. And the key point is that the higher the volatility, the higher your return, the more fees you collect.
and you have a very stable asset, even the stable coin to stable coin pool, this is not very volatile. The price stays within plus or minus 1%, but then you do get steady return. So there's, it's, still, it's always a trade-off, I guess, with uh, LPing. The higher the volatility, the more frequently you have to rebalance, but then you get re you get rewarded perhaps by higher fees. But then if you want to be conservative, you can go for wider range, or you can go to these very stable assets. And that's also kind of give you a different return profile that matches the risk that you're taking on. I think I think another uh, one one more thing, Wasabi. Um, that's kind of because what we're talking about right now is realized volatility, uh, which you know, looking back at the history of of the asset as it trades. And I think what's kind of cool about UniV three is it also shows you the distribution of the other um, liquidity providers in the current moment in time. Which, uh, in my mind, that is giving you a measure of implied volatility. So it's it's showing you what the market predicts, um, you know, the ranges will be in. So you could use both of those uh, pieces of information to inform where you're going to put your liquidity. And yes, that is correct. And if I, if I may, so the the this uh, the whole exercise of me going down the Uniswap B3 rabbit hole was just to make me myself a better LP. And I was pu I'm publishing my results as I'm finding them. I have a Medium blog, but I also worked the I also forked the uh, Uniswap uh, analytics interface. And I do uh, I kind of improve perhaps the uh, the uh, or increase the amount of information that's available. And I, I do also report on the implied volatility of any asset that's traded that's tradable on Uniswap. So as you mentioned, it's really the liquidity distribution dictates where say the market thinks the price is going to go, but also the volume daily volume dictates how the the volatility the realized volatility is actually. Um, Kind of uh, impacting the price. So if you go again on on, on my the, the website is ubo.org. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can physically really see which assets have a high volatility, which assets have a low volatility. But you can also see how this volatility has kind of uh, expanded and perhaps contracted over time. And again, the 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 world of options uh, has uh, if you deal with again Uniswap Uni V three positions as options. You kind of now use this implied volatility as one of the main indicators for your risk and also your reward that you would get by participating in, in that pool. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could walk us through just sort of your decision. I know on your Twitter, you've posted these really cool kind of uh, uh, decision uh, process, like a, a decision tree to, to go and select your assets. And, and that's based on if you what your view is on a particular asset, if you're bullish or bearish, you can hedge a little bit. But w just more like in your personal LPing, like could you walk us through what a typical trade looks like, how you select the assets, what duration you calibrate for, and um, when you remove it, and your decision to kind of rebalance into that same pool or um, go to a different asset? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, again, the the first this the the. The first decision you have to make is how long you want. So even before that, which which asset to choose, right? So you, you can go and look at the list on the analytics page, say, of Uniswap. Uh, if you go on the Ubo interface, you have the implied volatility. But at the end of the day, you have to choose an asset that you think has perhaps some risk pricing or is highly volatile or will do something that you think will be true. So you always start with an assumption. And the way that I see it is that... Uh, I'm I'm mostly wrong. Whenever I think an asset will go up, it goes down. If I think something will go down, go up, it's going to go up. So I'm always wrong directionally. So I always use a delta neutral approach. So I say uh, it's going to be range bound between X and Y price, and that's typically where I start. I don't want to predict 
which tokens would go up. Most of the time, even uh, in the Uniswap pools, the tokens are ETH token. So you have to outperform ETH to be able to actually uh, be right directionally. So this is also even war uh, harder to do uh, for most assets. So if I start from my initial assumption that I don't know anything, I'm sure many of our users also feel that they don't know anything about trading. That's fine. You just have to have an assumption that matches that. So in my case, I don't know where the price is going to go. I see it's going to be range bound between a certain range. And that's next. And, and once I, I go through the list of assets, say that are on, on the Uniswap uh, analytics page, I narrow down on one asset. One key point is that uh, I, I, if I have a positive outlook, if I think the asset would outperform E, then that's fine. I can just buy the asset, lock it into a UniV3 position. And then if I'm lucky, the asset increases, the asset price increases. I sell on the way up. If you want, I lock in a small profit because it went up, but also I collect some fees. That's one way to profit when you have a positive or a positive Delta outlook on an asset. But if you have a neutral or even negative outlook or bearish outlook on an asset, you need to be able to borrow the asset itself. So there needs to be a short component to your position. And the way that I approach this personally is that I keep all of my funds in E and uh, I use, say, uh, order finance or compound or Aave to borrow the token. So I say, look, two ETH and two ETH worth of borrowed tokens into my LP position. So because the tokens that I lock with my own ETH have been borrowed as opposed to purchased, that means that I have to pay back the debt that I created. But that helps me if the token price goes down. Because it's borrowed, I can buy it on the open market at a lower price. So that helps me on the way down. And that can be, uh, and if it goes up as well, you lose because the token price goes up and then you're shorted. But if you borrow 50% of the asset and provide 50% of your own ETH, then that creates this delta neutral position. And typically you would lock, in, lock it into Uniswap B3, close to the middle of the range. And as long as you're within that range and the width of your range, again, is your uh, timeline, if you want to say again, uh, on, on my um, flow chart that, that uh, Wasabi was referring to, there's a few kind of numbers. But if it's plus or minus 6% of the current price, it's about every day that you have to balance. If it's 20%, it's every seven days. If it's 40%, it's every month. So you can choose, again, starting from a token, starting from a directional assumption, you can choose how wide it has to be. And then you deploy with the right range and then you wait. I, you can do this once a day and that's enough for me. I go look at my positions. If I'm in range and I collect fees, I'm happy. If I'm about to be out of range, this is when you start to think, okay, do I rebalance? Do I withdraw my funds? Do I pay back the debt? And if I'm really outside of the range, then you have to kind of suck it up and most of the time uh, realize the loss that maybe your initial assumption, which was range bound and neutral, if it goes to the moon or if it goes to zero, you lose both ways. But you, that's kind of part of the deal. You have to unwind your position, start anew with your fresh bag of ETH, and then start with, with a new position. And in, in this case, you are denominating everything in ETH. So you're not trying to hedge out the risk of ETH or the crypto market going down in USD terms at all. That is correct. Unless I'm really participating to the ETH USDC or ETH uh, stablecoin pool, uh, I don't care about the price of ETH. So again, these late, latest uh, market uh, tumbles don't impact me as much because the ETH, and the token went down at the same rate, more or less. So it's still range bound, and it, it's it's a it's a known. Um, it's actually now it's a known phenomenon in traditional finance, 
when you have a market crash or when assets go down, the correlation increases significantly. So uh, during uh, a bull market, some assets may outperform others. Sometimes some go down, sometimes others go up. But the correlation in bear markets is is typically less than one, much less than one. But in bull, in bull markets, in crashes, they all converge and they all go down at the same time. Regardless if you are a Tesla or an IBM or a Ford Motors, if the market is bad, everything goes down at the same time. So if you're in a uh, ETH uh, token pool, then both will go down at the same rate, more or less, so that, that you can actually be uh, less impacted than if you have all your pools in stablecoin pairs. Because now ETH and the token go down at the same time. They go up at the same as well, but that's kind of the, the 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 decision that I'm making. Everything is in terms of ETH. If I do want to hedge my net ETH position, I could either short it or do futures or do something else. But I don't even do it. I just consider everything uh, in terms of ETH. I, I feel like there's an interesting just you know to be more topical to what's going on in the current markets, like with this Uni V3 thing, uh, is you could. Like, you know, say you had a position that uh, you thought Bitcoin's not going to go under $9,000 in the next year or something, and um, you'd be happy to sell some at 40 k right? You could open up a, a pool from, you know, 9000 to 40 and then put, you know, some Bitcoin and uh, stable coins into it at the current price. And, um, you know, if, if it works out, you sold, you bought Bitcoin at 20 k and sold it at 40 and Otherwise, if it goes all the way down to nine, um, you would have bought all that Bitcoin and then be sitting. You, you could make that choice to, to not, you know, let it go back into range at that point and be like, OK, cool. Now I now I'm long Bitcoin at 9K. I don't know. That would be a scary thing to do at 9K. But uh, it, it does seem like you could structure that with Uni V3, right? Exactly. And again, if, if you have a, um, a directional assumption, the you, at the end of the day, if you're extremely sure about your assumption, the best strategy is to buy the token. That way you have 100% upside. As you mentioned, if you're doing it in Uni V3, you're selling on the way up. And at the end of the day, you'll be left with no token and all, say, a stable coin because you sold on the way up. So your net return will be lower, but then you would still be positive, which is, again, nobody went bankrupt making money. But yes, the 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 fact that Uni V3 has a uh, a fee that is collected does change your uh, perhaps your your return uh, or probably of profit in a way that is different than just buying and holding. Again, as I mentioned, right, if you have right. a neutral assumption or even a negative assumption, you can still short it, but then you you're, you're capping your profits, and the uh, the counterpart of that is that you collect fees, which can also kind of extend your 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 regions of uh, where you're. The thing, though, uh, that's interesting, which I think, like you sort of just hinted at, as uh, you can make you can take a bet on path dependency, right? So, for instance, um, if you think Bitcoin's going to go back to forty k, but it's going to take three years and it's going to trade between you know nine k and forty k for the next three years, then the amount of fees you would get versus just holding the Bitcoin right now until then um, would just you know super outperform, right? Even though you would end up uh, you you know you'd have to say okay well it's then not going to go to 100k the next week or whatever right because you would have sold all your bitcoin um, but if you're still bullish you could buy it back with you know with the the fees you collected and that sort of thing but uh, it does it does seem to me like um, it creates some really unique ways to to take um, positions and, and views on things exactly and again the the key point is that you can be directional and you can be strategic. 
buying a token and waiting for it to go to the moon is uh, one strategy, but then there's, you can buy or you can sell. There's not much you can do. Now with UniV3, or if you look at the, the, the analogies between UniV3 and options, this allows you to be, again, a lot more strategic, a lot more uh, directional in your assumption, but still maintaining the risks a little bit. So that's kind of the, the, the reason why I myself have uh, been a huge participant in, in LPing. That's also I'm kind of working uh, on this fork of the Uniswap interface to make it easier for me, but also the community and also further along. Uh, we'll talk about that. But then the, the protocol I'm working on, which is actually making an options protocol on top of UniV3 in a way that is kind of bringing a DeFi native options protocol uh, to the chain that, that that's something that can, can, is kind of not currently seen yet. So uh, another question I have on this is if, if you were to try to do a completely Delta neutral in USD ETH terms, um, is that possible or can you all, you can't really escape that, that exposure to the price of ETH. So for example, like if ETH was at a uh, thousand and you put a thousand USDC and one ETH into a, a V3, um, would you then want to hedge the full value? Would you want to like get one of these perps, you know, like a five X uh, short ETH to go over that full two thousand dollar position, or like how would you think about trying to create a delta neutral for a for a stable coin ETH pair? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the if we go back to the meaning of delta neutral. The delta neutrality of it is that if the underlying changes in price, your net value, the net value of your position doesn't change. So the zero, the, the relationship between an underlying price and value is zero. That's why you have kind of this stable stability. If there's a huge move, may, maybe this assumption will not hold. But at the end of the day is that if you have small moves, maybe day-to-day, intraday uh, movements, you assume that your net worth doesn't go down, whether it's going up, whether the token is going up 1% or down 1%. So at the end of the day, that's just telling you the slope of your value. And uh, the variable, I guess, or the x-axis is the price of the asset. So what you can do, is, as you mentioned, you can short it on a perpetual protocol or you can borrow some of the asset. But at the end of the day, you just have to know what is your net delta and what is the amount of short position you have to take on to neutralize this delta? If you buy one ETH, for instance, your delta is 100%. And if you want to be neutral, you have to short 100% of one ETH. And that's kind of the, the silly way of doing this. But now with Uniswap v3, if you start with a position and your price is right in the middle of your range, say between 500 and 1600, your delta will be about 50%. So a $1 move in ETH price corresponds to half a dollar increase in your value. If it goes down $1, you lose half a dollar as well. So this delta, the relationship between price and value is what you need to neutralize. So in that case, the slope of your um, value is 50%. You have to short 50% of your net value. That would be half an ETH. So if you were to start with a new position, you deposit some, um, some funds, but then you have to short uh, the ETH component of your of the value of your of your position. As the price moves, perhaps this delta will change. Instead of being fifty percent, it can be thirty percent if it goes in, if the price goes up. It can be seventy percent if the price goes down. Goes down. That's why you may have to adjust your hedge and then short a little bit more or buy back some of the ETH that you've shorted. 
but uh, that if you if you start from the assumption that this is just simply shorting and neutralizing the value, this is how how you do it. You just start at, at your the stop of your value, and then you you short the amount that needs to be bring. You need to bring this back to zero. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the the tricky thing because say you you um and I've had this happen you know a few times where you will say you start with the fifty fifty ETH, then ETH goes down, and then you at the end you are left one hundred percent in ETH and ETH can still keep going down even more, right? So that's, you know, cutting down the, the it becomes 100% ETH. So then you have to hedge more than you would have if you were at that point when you started, right? So like, that's kind of the risk, the the real downside risk that, that I'd be trying to hedge. And I've come up with like some strategy I was trying to try um, where I literally was wrote a uh, Python script that would allow me to just exit the Uniswap position as soon as it went more than like a, a threshold below range. So you could set a really tight range and then know that if it went out of position, out of uh, range on the downside with ETH, that it would just blow out of that and convert it to stable coins to kind of like cap some of that downside of going where ETH falls below the range that you have. Like, is that? ridiculous in any way or, or does that have any any uh potential as a way to, to cap the downside of it going way below your range yeah exactly if you if you can afford having your 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 computer running i guess 24 7 and catch every market move that's definitely the best way to go but as i mentioned if you have a wider position this will happen perhaps once every few hours once every day once every week so you don't have to manage it immediately either if you're out of the range just by a tiny amount, uh, there's still somewhat a 50% chance you'll come back into range within a few days. So I typically don't over uh, manage or maybe over hedge or over, uh, over, yeah, over manage my positions because I trust that if I have a one week timeline, can spend one day outside. Sometimes it comes back. If after one day I see it's still outside, then I can try to hedge it back to where it's kind of fully dental neutral. Or what I more often do is that I unwind my position. If I'm lucky, I collected fees. That means that I still made a profit. But if I did not make a profit, I just move on and say, okay, too bad I lost five, 10% of my position. Let me redeploy in a different range that now I believe will be more successful. Awesome. And then final question on, on V3. Um, you in some of your your guides you've said you're looking for coins that are in uh, price discovery mode so like when there's all this volatility and they're just blowing up i know some some friends uh at badger have had luck with like these one percent fee pools that's the other thing that we haven't talked about there's different fee levels on uniswap that you can pick um but finding tokens when it's their first week or two after launch and there's just like a ton of trading back and forth that can really juice your uh, returns too, because there's just so much more transaction fees that you're collecting. How big of a factor of that is, is the the fee pool and also the just underlying vol volume on the token when you're selecting a, a position? Yeah, exactly. So uh, this is actually a one, one a, a different strategy. Again, this is a transient event. Say for instance, the Optimism token that launched any new airdrop People have now a lot of tokens. They either want to buy more, they want to sell more. But the key point is that most of the time, the Uniswap pools are not liquid enough. If you start on day one, 
nobody has had the opportunity to bring in uh, to kind of lock their tokens, but everybody wants to sell or maybe maybe people want want to buy. So this uh, under liquid pool and increased in trading activity creates kind of a perfect storm where now the realized volatility will explode and it can be very, very high. Again, I, I did also publish a, an animation of the ETH ribbon pool for the first, say, five or six days. It hit, uh, again, a volatility is in the thousands of percent. So that means that it moved quite a bit within the first few days. Of course, the volatility uh, decreased once, say, trading activity subsided and also the liquidity increased. But during these first few days, uh, even though you can uh, be out of range most of the time, even though it's hard to know where the actual price is, again, because it's in price discovery mode, you can still accumulate fees. And if you're fees in a way that is kind of reflecting of that high risk uh, pool that is kind of in the thousands of percents of volatility. So again, you, you, it's, it's, a very, um, it's a very risky endeavor. Sometimes the risks are worth it. Sometimes the risks aren't worth it. But it's just kind of a new. It's it's a new uh, way of maybe uh, capitalizing on an, on an event. So in, I, I compare this perhaps to even traditional finance. Every company has earnings, and a few days or maybe to up to a week leading to the earnings date, then the activity picks up, and you have again a lot of trading, and the volatility does increase. You have the earning earning that's released. You have either a huge jump in price or perhaps the earning were within range and there's a huge decrease in volatility. And in traditional finance, many people can bet on these events without necessarily saying, I think the stock will go up or down, but you can bet on the volatility uh, kind of decreasing or the volatility collapsing after the event. And that's also kind of a bet that is very similar to these highly volatile pools that are created in Uniswap A3 following an an airdrop. All right. Um, Do you have any final tips on uh, V3 uh, LPing that we didn't cover before we, we move to uh, Panoptic? Uh, go, yeah, go on uh, info.ubo.org and that, that you'll get a, a, some information that is not in the Uniswap, but then typically that will hopefully help you identify the right pools. Uh, one key point is that the ETH stablecoin pool may be very liquid. There might be a lot of trading activity but there might be too much liquidity and the returns may be diminished because of that. It's not always the most traded pool that you want to participate into. It's the one that has, I guess, a higher volatility or at least something you can you can shoulder. So yeah, do track volatility as a way to to kind of uh, choose which pools you participate to. Yeah, that's, that's a really good tip. I know there are a couple other interfaces like this. Um, I've looked at yours, I've looked at uh, Flipside Crypto and there's uh, DeFi Labs. They all have, you know, any one of these is kind of like 2000% better than the information they give you within the actual Uniswap uh, interface. So I hope Uniswap kind of like starts building in more tools like this or can pull data from yours to kind of give people more of a path to go forward when they're when they're doing these positions. Cool. Um, well, let's. So, in the, at the start, you left a breadcrumb that you have have had success kind of breaking down Uni V three positions into um, thinking about them like selling an option. Um, so, and then you're kind of taking this one step further and building out a new DeFi options protocol that's built on top of Uniswap V three. So, um, and that's called Panoptic Options. I know you're you're 
I guess pre-launch, I was reading the white paper the other night, but let's, um, let's get into that. So, um, when you were looking at other on-chain options, there are a couple other protocols that exist already. There's Hedgic, which is, I guess, European style options. And then there's Ribbon, which is, I think they buy options off-chain, but then it's kind of like this vault that you can deposit your uh, stable coins in and, and earn yield on the selling uh, selling options. But um, what, what made you think that there was this uh, big hole in the market with the other protocols, like what's what's missing here that that we need the the new protocol? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I can go with my own own I guess history with options. Again, I'm a applied physics professor. I use math and models that are applied to my research, which is in which is in biophysics. But when I encountered options a few years ago, the the, the pricing of options kind of made sense to me because the models that are used to price the options are exactly the same I use in my own research. So you have stochastic processes, Brownian motion. So all of this was very natural to me. So it was easy for me to understand options and kind of mostly learn through trial and errors. But I get, at the end of the day, I got a pretty good understanding of what it's like to sell options at a retail level. And uh, retail users do it somewhat. Institutions sell and buy a lot of options as well. This is, again, a tool for hedging or a tool for increasing perhaps your yield when you're in traditional finance. And that's currently not necessarily uh, seen in, in, in on the blockchain. Again, the, the the trading volumes of options every day in the traditional markets has exceeded for the past few years the stock trading volume. Again, people are familiar with maybe GameStop calls or you can buy puts as well on your uh, least favorite stocks. But it's not something that the retail users do very, uh, very um, often. But then institutions, larger funds, are eating away. I mean, they're they're eating the market, and they are trading options a lot. So I can imagine that if we see the evolution of say DeFi and blockchain kind of eating the world as well, we may expect a similar need to be kind of filled by an options market. And as you mentioned, there's many people that identify this need and say, okay, we're going to build an options market on chain. And most of what people do is maybe using a skeuomorphic approach where they try to replicate or port or copy and paste. What people are used to, which is an options market with expirations, with strikes, and all the information you see uh, on the trading interface and try to bring this on chain. And if you do this, you're somewhat limited because computationally, it's hard to price an option. You have to solve, again, uh, an equation that contains logs and exponentials. It's very difficult to do on chain. And that limits, again, uh, how you can effectively price the options. But at the same time, the fact that the... Uh, the options has to be, they have to be treated on chain. There's a block time limit. Every 15 seconds, you have a block. If there's an expiration, there could be some scrambling at the end of the expiry and everybody wants to fill their order. It could be a huge increase in price. So just trying to replicate 100% of what happens in TradFi to DeFi, you hit many walls. The rules are just simply too different to make it so that it works well. And what we do, I guess, in Panoptic and, and, and what I think will be more successful is to just embrace the DeFi nature of, uh, of options and create something that is can be perhaps a bit newer, a bit different, but it still behaves mostly like an option. So if I can go back to the, the, uh, the analogy with Uniswap, before Uniswap, so Uniswap is very simple. You have token A, token B, you can swap them. No worries about... Uh, the details of what happens in the background, you just get the tokens you want. Before Uniswap, you had Ether Deltas, DDEX, you had these 
order books that would look a lot like what you would find in traditional finance, but you had to kind of sign a transaction to, 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 to list an asset, to place an order. The whole thing was very clunky and was very hard to scale. But now the Uniswap model made it very easy. Anybody can launch on any pair. And that's what we want to kind of replicate in, in, in the world of options. So again, as you mentioned, Hedgeek and Ribbon or many different protocols are trying to maybe create an options market like they see in TradFi. But what we want to do with Panoptic is instead, again, embrace the nature of DeFi, create an option that now, again, if we identify the problems, if there's scrambling uh, at the end of an expiration because you have to fill your order by a specific block, let's just get rid of the expiry, expiration. You have perpetual options now, so you don't have to worry about that. Now you deal with the order book. How do you price an, uh, an option? You can't really solve these complex uh, equations. Why don't we use the premium that's generated in Uniswap v3 as the premium you would pay for an option? And that would also kind of create its own perhaps discrepancies with TradFi, but as long as people are conscious of the risks, and that means that now your option is perpetual, and the price may be a bit more variable. But at the end of the day, if you deal with these two kind of constraints, you can still now have a instrument that looks like an option, behaves like an option, why not calling it an option? And that's what, again, we would try to achieve with Panoptic. So let me see if I can uh, understand what you're saying. Because you, because you have a measure of you know, volatility or prediction you know, an estimate of volatility, you can create uni v3 ranges that will stay, stay in range over a certain period of time. So you could, you know, that would be equivalent to like, you know, a um, expiration price on an option. And then those ranges also are, you know, the, the because of the, <laughs> the way the volatility is, is price and time, you know, uh, proportionality, those options also then, you know, sort of have a strike price and an expiration. So, um, you know, if you if you were to put your funds into this Uni V3 pool that was this range, you would expect them to um, earn this many fees over this period of time with this probability that it goes out of range, basically, right? And then, so then that option goes to zero. Yes, that is correct. So again, if I want to, I mean, we can, uh, I can, I can describe how it works a bit more carefully. Uh, the key point, is that we use Uniswap v3 as the clearinghouse for options. So again, in traditional finance, you have fixed expiries. They fall on Fridays because typically people had to physically ship uh, stock certificates, distribute them. Someone exercised their call or their right to buy an option. They had to buy the stock. They had to kind of shuffle and assign or clear all of the stocks at the end. And they did it over the weekend. Monday, everything got their, their stocks that they wanted. So now this clearinghouse activity instead of happening in a different in a smart contract or a physical uh, warehouse somewhere in Chicago, where it was it used to be uh, when options launched, I guess, with the CBOE. Now it happens within Uniswap. So again, Uniswap is this has this magical way of transferring asset A into asset B, depending on the price. So if you go back to the range that we discussed earlier, if you have a very, very narrow range, 1% wide, if the price is below your token A, if the price is above, you're talking B. So just the act of trading, just the act of the price that happens within the Uniswap pool, that tells you that your LP position now can be worth token A or it can be worth token B. So if you were to lend that position now, someone borrows an LP position, 
it can be either token A or token B as well. So you borrow, so if we go back to a real <laughs> example, you borrow an LP position below the current strike price. If you do this, you would borrow USDC, for instance, in the ETH USDC pool. You borrow USDC, the price goes down. And as it crosses this price, now your debt is not USDC anymore, it's ETH. And if the price goes to zero, you have USDC that you you you, you borrowed, it's in your wallet. But now your debt is in ETH. So if the price of ETH goes to 500, you can just buy one ETH in the open market, reimburse your debt, which is now ETH as opposed to uh, USDC. You keep your stable coin. You have the, your profit is the difference between the current price and the strike price and voila. You can actually sell a, buy a put because you borrowed an LP position. So the same process yeah, happens that's pretty, on the that's call pretty side. Crazy. Yeah, so, the, so it's, there's a lot of borrowing happening, but you borrow or you short an LP position. And just this simple fact that you short an LP position creates the exact same payoff as a put. And that is what allows you to now sell a, uh, an asset at a fixed price, regardless of its open market price. So the, the question that I'm struggling with is this idea of a perpetual option, because in my mind, like when you know, I've traded options a little bit, um, but the key concept is that you're paying a fixed premium as you know, if you're buying an option, you're paying a fixed premium and you're making a bet that it will go up to the strike price, you know, move relative to the strike price within this very definite period of time, right? Before the expiry. So how um, is, is the profile of buying a perpetual option similar to like perpetual futures where you're just kind of paying a rate um, and then you could get liquidated if it goes below a certain amount and you're getting a leverage payoff in the, in the meantime, like is the, is the actual kind of trading decision that someone's making similar to just regular leverage trading? No, not quite. So at the end, as you mentioned, in perpetual uh, instruments, you have a funding rate. If you uh, go long, you have to pay the funding rate. If you go short most of the time, you get paid. But we're not doing it that way. The beauty of it is that if, as I mentioned earlier, if you borrow an LP position and that position is out of range, it's not accumulating fees. So in theory, you don't have to... Um, to reimburse the seller of the fees they would have accumulated. So again, if you go back to the example before, someone deposited liquidity into Uniswap, they expected some fees to be accumulated. So someone buys that option, removes that liquidity, the premium they have to pay is the fees that would have been collected by that position. And if the, the, the your put is at $500, for instance, and the price shoots up to the moon and never touches that strike, you never accumulated fee, you bought an option that costs zero, you can just burn it or unmint it and you don't have to pay anything. If on the other hand, the price did move and did cross your 500 strike, for instance, the time it it, it was in range, it accumulates some fees. Maybe it goes up and down for four, between 450 and 600 and it crosses that strike many times. So the fees that are accumulated may be, again, a sizable fraction of your position. But if at the end of the day, the price goes down, you have to reimburse the seller by for the fees that they would have collected, but you can exercise your option and now get your expo, your your, your upside exposure because you had kind of, again, the, the puts, which is the right to sell a, an asset at a fixed price. So, so even you can though buy... it doesn't, 
So oh, one quick point is that, for instance, the GME calls that everybody bought, the 1,000 strike call, uh, I guess a year and a half ago, it costs maybe, I don't know if it costs like $100, $150. People paid it. It never went anywhere near $1,000 uh, for the price of GameStop or GME. So they lost their money. If you do it through Panoptic, you actually now don't pay anything if it didn't touch or if it never became in range. So you can have a call that's doesn't cost you anything. And if it never touches that range, then, then you can unmit for free. But on the, on the other side of that, if you were um, in the money or whatever, on, on some out of the money call you bought, it would be in your best interest to sell it then, right? Because then otherwise you would just be not, you, you just have to wait again for it to come in the money and then you're just having to pay those extra fees. Yeah, exactly. So if whichever your strike, if you, you, you create a position with the price on one side of where the location is, if it crosses it, you become in the money. So it's in your, it's to your benefit to exercise and buy it or sell it at the price that is, has been kind of determined. But if you never touch the, the strike, if you get to a point where there's no, uh, opportunity for you to exercise, then that's fine. You can just burn your position and move on. All right. So um, with this protocol, you have kind of three main parties, right? You have the LPs and then you have the buyers and sellers of, of the options, right? So could you maybe walk us through an example with like a token that and, and the sort of like risks and payoffs that would be associated or actions within the app for each of those three groups yeah yeah sure so i'll start with the option buyer so we, we talked about this a little bit the experience of the user story of an option buyer will be very similar to what happens in tradfi if you want to have upside exposure you buy a call if you want to have downside protection somewhat you can buy a put but at the end of the day they would just select a strike they would select i mean an asset pair select a strike and then if the price moves in their in their favor they can exercise and profit and they have to pay a premium. So at the end of the day, the buyer will be normal users that buy options. They would do it here. They don't have to worry about expirations and they don't have to worry necessarily about the uh, the, the paying premium up front. They have to kind of reimburse it when they get to exercise their, their option. So that's one role. The buyer will be, again, at home in Panoptic. They can buy options as well. And I have to mention any asset pool or any Uniswap pool that exists currently can be an options market. There's no permission listing or white listing. If there's a uni v3 pool that exists, you can create an options market. So I'll be happy to buy puts, say, on Shiba Inu or sell uh, buy calls on ETH uh, ribbon, for instance. But at the end of the day, uh, we make it permissionless so that the long tail of assets, which is what is not currently available in centralized exchanges, is where we maybe will shine the most because we'll be able to provide a liquid options market on top of any Uniswap v3 pool. So that's the buyer. The seller will be very similar to the current liquidity providers in Uniswap v3. Their role will be to provide liquidity at a specific range in the pool that they like with the implied volatility, I guess, as one factor determining where which pools to participate to. But they would, again, deploy liquidity to a specific range. They would, doing this will be effectively, effectively selling an option. So either this option gets bought or purchased and if this happens, the um, the sellers will reimburse them for the fees, or it can not be bought, or it, it, you can sell an option to the protocol 
And this will accumulate fees that will correspond to your premiums you collected. And then when you're happy, you unmint or burn your position. And again, at the end of the day, this activity will be very similar to the current LP providers that are doing it currently in Uniswap. And one way that we are maybe um, making it better, or two ways we make it better for current LPs of Uniswap, is that one, we give them access to leverage. So you can deploy liquidity, but also you can borrow some funds to now increase your yields potentially. So you can have, instead of, uh, of, of deploying one ETH at a specific strike, you can borrow some of it and effectively magnify or multiply by two your, your returns. And at the end of the day, you have to kind of repay back what you borrow, but you can actually magnify and make your returns higher with a kind of corresponding increase in risk because you kind of have borrowed assets. So that's one way to, um, to make it more profitable for LPs because now they have access to leverage in their position. And also they have access to options buying as well. Again, uh, selling a naked call or a naked put is highly risky. A lot of people, what they do is that they buy, they buy puts or they buy options for downside protection risk. Again, instead of having a, a short call, you can have a call spread. So you sell an option at a, spra- a specific strike, you buy another one at a higher strike, and that will cap or limit your risk. So that's also another way that LPs can actually be more profitable because they don't have to worry about impermanent loss when the token, say, goes to the moon or goes to zero. You can simply buy an option to cap your risk as well and be, be more protected against or have a higher control over your risks. So that's the two roles, buyers and sellers. The third role, we call them liquidity providers. And this is maybe similar to what the brokerage firms or the banks do currently with their clients. You can go to a bank and you have a brokerage account. You can borrow on margin some funds and uh, the bank will lend you that fund for a specific kind of funding rate or, or, or borrow fee. So we have a similar role in Panoptic. Users that want to provide liquidity in a passive manner without having to worry about choosing the strikes or choosing the width or the range of your posi- their position, they can just deposit one asset, single-sided, and this asset will be lended uh, or borrowed by the sellers and the market makers, and they, they will receive kind of, kind of a lending fee or commission fee through that lending. So it's a similar system as, say, lending protocols, but instead of the users borrowing funds to, say, buy tokens or buy a house or do something else, their only use case for this borrowing is to deploy it into a new swap pool. And that activity on its own generate yields in a way that is perhaps uh, very low risk, but also lower rewards. We target maybe between 5 and 10% APY for these liquidity providers. But these would be kind of the, 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 the lifeblood of this protocol because they would provide funds that could be borrowed by sellers. These funds will help fill up the, the market so that buyers can also buy options. And at the end of the day, that's kind of where, where the... The, 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 we say that we bring back fungible liquidity to Uniswap. So those that are used to passive liquidity providing in Uniswap V2, where they lock funds and then come back seven months later and then get yields, they can do the same thing with Panoptic. But instead of having to worry about impermanent loss, they provide, say, ETH, they get ETH back and some yield, or they provide DAI or USDC or uh, Luna, and they get Luna back with some yield. Would it be just kind of like a GMX where there's a pool of assets and you're trying to keep some ratio or could it be any asset or it's some kind of like white list of assets for the LPs? No, so it's any asset. Again, as long as there's a Uniswap pool that exists, you can spin up an options market on top. 
and also the the market perhaps will drive the the activity so if everybody wants to buy puts on on shiba inu uh the you you can get better yields now by selling puts so the iv will increase you can identify this as the right pool so the we won't be necessarily again whitelisting or coaching lps but rather we would let the market speak for itself and if someone sees a potential APY in like uh, 50% in a pool that may be more risky, they we would still enable them to do this and met and meet the market demand in some ways. And that would be kind of where the the the, the market participants would be guiding or kind of shaping the markets a little bit more. Cool. What about um, just the, like, if there is this opportunity to either sell options or LP instead of, being a straight LP in the in the underlying Uniswap pool, or I guess does does it if if this is more attractive than just being the straight LP in, in Uniswap, does that risk kind of like sucking the liquidity from the Uniswap LPs into this protocol that's on top of it, or does there have to be like a certain minimum of liquidity in Uniswap in order to to have a pool, or is it just literally any arbitrary pair can can do this? Yeah, so the, the the key point is that we're kind of in a symbiotic relationship with Uniswap because we, uh, when someone sells an option, they, they deploy liquidity in Uniswap. So they, con they contribute to uh, increasing the liquidity in, in the pool that they participate into. So at the end of the day, the, 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 the funds that go through us are can be deployed by sellers to Uniswap. So that's kind of a, a right balance. So some pools have too much liquidity and the pools that have too much liquidity now may have more buyers that remove liquidity and put it back into Panoptic. And that will equilibrate, equilibrate I guess, the, the markets a little bit more and create, again, perhaps uh, uh, more tightly focused distributions around the current price. But that's not going to be driven by active, say, market-making activity, but rather options buying and selling that will now kind of shift and be responding to, to the price movements. Okay, I've got it. So it's actually deploying that, deploying liquidity into the pool actually is what creates the underlying option. So it's going back into, okay, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. So every, L, every Uniswap LP, Uniswap V3 LPs now are selling options, whether they know it or not. So what we enable this is that we say, hey, you can use our protocol. We also optimize the gas somewhat so that it might be cheaper to deploy an LP position through our protocol. But not only that, you can also access some leverage. Again, you, you can you don't have to access leverage if you don't, don't want to, but you access some leverage and also you can buy options at the same time. So you can create or access, I guess, a lot more strategies than just this LP position, which is, again, a short put, which is positive delta unless you short, as we mentioned earlier in this in this uh, episode, if we short it, you can create delta neutral. Now you can create it by having two options instead of shorting uh, an asset, say uh, somewhere else. Cool. So um, in your in the white paper, you mentioned one use case of this would be for DAOs that have a lot of their native token as a way to create income over that or diversify their treasury. Can you walk us through like uh, how how that use case would look? Yeah, actually, actually, uh, to, to you know, to just kill two birds with one stone, um, Badger has you know so far we have, you know we have this big uh, treasury controlled liquidity position inside of Uni V three, which you know right now trading in a in a range that's you know got a bunch of Bitcoin in it and a bunch of Badger in it, but then above that we have um, you know you know Uni V three 
three pools that just have badgers sitting in them. And then we have, uh, you know, under that UNIV three pools with Bitcoin in them. So would, would Badger be able to just take that entire structure and put it into your system? And then there would be this whole plethora of a, of a range of, of call and puts that we could be creating, like selling against these things? Yeah, exactly. So a, a protocol like or a DAO like Badger would be now acting as the liquidity provider. So they don't have to worry about actively market making or selling options. Selling options has its own risks as well. But rather, they would be providing liquidity. So now people can borrow that liquidity and shape the 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 Uniswap market again by buying put buying buying and selling options. And now you have a lot more activity that just happens organically from trading the options. If now I want to, uh, I'm, I'm sure you. If I want to get a leverage position on Badger, I can't really uh, borrow Badger or it's 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 not necessarily on the open market. But now because there's a liquid. Uniswap pool, then you can create these, you can buy long calls, for instance, you can create these positions that are kind of matching your, your, your assumptions or directionalities. So yeah, so a, any protocol that wants to kind of generate trading activity, again, the it's, it's a partly of part of it is speculation. Again, uh, buying an option is placing a bet more or less on where the liquidity is going to go. But if you sell option, you are providing liquidity, you're taking some risks so that the buyer or the trader has a more stable price. So that could also influence kind of the trading activity of the own token of the, the DAO, for instance, because now sellers are populating the, uh, the, the Uniswap pool in a way that matches an options uh, selling profile as opposed to just let's stay in range for the longer. And that would shift and make it a lot more kept, more efficient and responds more, much more accurately to the market than just saying, I'm going to use a full range position, for instance, and collect a fraction of the fee of someone that can now sell options and do it in a more efficient manner. So the DAO would, um, just trying to think about this, like, you know, mechanically, so the DAO would deposit the LP position or would the DAO just be depositing its native token? Yeah, so they would be, so if you deposit the native token into Panoptic, now people can sell calls on Badger. So if someone sells a call, someone can buy it as well. So you, again, the GME GameStop means that you can buy calls. If there's a lot of liquidity on the Badger side, that means that people can buy calls very easily and they can sell calls as well. And, and, and that's kind of the, the, the other side of the, uh, of the equation. But if you have, again, your, your BTC Badger pool, if you provide BTC now, now you can sell puts and buy puts as well. So someone uh, may want to get some downside protection. I'm sure Badger token will go to the moon. But if someone thinks it's going to go down, they could buy puts as well. But then they would have to access this BTC or ETH of the, the other token in the pair when they do this. So again, the, 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 the fact that you provide Badger will kind of facilitate the buying of call options. That may be also something that, again, uh, the increases the trading activity as well. And that could also kind of generate a lot of interest in, in the token that normally would not be seen as opposed. Again, if you want to speculate or place a bet on the value of an asset, now the only options you have is either buy it, buy and hold, or not buy it. And you, you, you may be buying it at a lower price. But if there's no uh, lending market, there's only buying that you can do now with calls. You can get leveraged positions. With puts, you can also get some, some kind of delta neutrality in your position. And that kind of expands the strategies that are available to, to the users. Yeah, and there the uh, the things 
that's nice about the uh, the puts and calls, at least from my perspective, is, is you have a, a very well measured risk on the position, right? Like it's not a you're not going to get margin called and, um, and and that sort of thing. I mean, you you know at the beginning what your your downside is. Exactly. So at least in our case, since we have this um, perpetual nature and this streaming streaming premium, uh, where uh, the, the the cost of any option starts at zero and increases over time. So there could be some type of liquidation, but you'll be liquidated because the cost of the option has increased beyond your collateral. So nowadays, if you want to buy a, a thousand uh, strike GME GameStop, it might be like five sets because the market as assesses that the probability it's really going to go there, it's tiny. So they sell it for you, to you for free. But if it does trust there in Panoptic, you can now rapidly accumulate a, a premium that could uh, mean that you could still be out of the money. So it touches a thousand, goes back to uh, 500. You still have to pay the fees that have been completed. So there's, there's a slightly different calculus that needs to be made. Overall, the, every, um, every protocol has its own risks. Here, the risk is that you, you can see the, the price going up too much. But if you're, you can still kind of top up perhaps your collateral or find a way to kind of pay what you're supposed to pay and then keep, to, to keep the position on. I see, but it would still uh, it it would liquidate, but so so it is that is that is different me mechanics wise from how an options contract works oh, traditionally. I, I, the but... worst, yeah, the worst case scenario, it would be very similar to traditional finance where you pay for an option and you don't get to exercise, so this money is gone. So the same thing could happen where you 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 deposited some collateral that covers, and we'll say it so that it it covers ten percent of the notional value. So uh, if you have a $100 call, you have to lock in $10. And uh, if it does happen that the price of the uh, the premium accumulates, you may lose that $10. And that's again, not too different than what you, <laughs> the activity that happens when you buy an option and don't get to exercise and your, your money's gone. And then, so we, we still could um, say we had some view or, uh, you know, we wanted to generate even more fees. We could sell, um, we could, we, not only we could deposit our own liquidity, we could also sell calls, right? Yes, that is correct. So you can sell your own liquidity more or less. So you, you can still be an LP, but then now you have, uh, uh, again, uh, access to somewhat, some leverage, but also you can be, um, so, so we, we also are, in the white paper, we talk about this, but we, our first priority is to launch on mainnet. We can launch on layer twos as well, but we launch on mainnet. So that means we can we have to optimize the gas consumptions as well so that it makes sense for user to still deploy positions on mainnet. And that means now we can you can also be an LP, but then save on gas and also have leverage. So there's many advantages that mean that you can still be doing the exact same thing as before, but now we have kind of this extra... Uh, yield that comes in from the lending fee as uh, for being a liquidity provider. It, just one more question: Is there any limits on, uh, or do you plan to have limits on, you know, how far of ranges these calls and puts can go, or is it just purely, you know, oh, if I go and make a bunch of really far out of the money calls, no one's going to buy it, and so they're just going to sit there? Yeah. So uh, it, it's. We won't impose limit, of course. We trust the users uh, maybe <laughs> to their own demise. But now, if you want to sell out of the money calls, that corresponds to you locking liquidity in Uniswap V3 far away from the current price. So again, the, you can imagine if someone locks 
100 ETH at 10,000 uh, ETH price. Uh, people could buy it, of course, but then uh, the, the 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 position will not get in range for <laughs> perhaps several years now. Ten thousand is is way longer, so the, there's no point in locking your capital in a out of range position if no one is going to buy it. So the, there's going to be some type of market making that happens if there's activity or if there's um, interest in some strikes. People hopefully will kind of flock and provide liquidity where it's needed. But yes, at the end of the day, the the seller will do its own thing. The buyer will also maybe buy uh, amongst what's available, or maybe signal where, where they want to buy, so that people can can provide liquidity there. Yeah, it's almost um, you know, I mean, we all wish markets would be a little bit calmer sometimes and less volatile. But I mean, I, I like the idea because it promotes more of you know, if you if this community wants to hold these governance tokens. Um, instead of just, you know, directionally betting that they go up over time, there's this huge incentive now to um, create concentrated liquidity around, you know, reasonable ranges. Um, because, you know, if you go do the math, right, um, you, you, don't, you don't have to earn 7% yield every month for very long to, you know, outdo, you know, tokens just going up or whatever. Yeah, and, 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 and if that means that the regular trader can get a more stable price with less slippage, that's also kind of a benefit for kind of token interest in general. So yeah, so it's it, it, what, what we kind of unwrap or unravel more or less is the fact that spot trading, options market, and even futures market all live within the same ecosystem, if you want, which is Uniswap V3. If you uh, look at traditional finance, uh, spot trading happens in New York. Options trading happens in Chicago. It used to be that uh, different firms, options trading firms in Chicago would route optical fibers from New York to, uh, I guess, Illinois. And the path that you take means that you shave off a few milliseconds to the next guy. Uh, and then depending on the weather, for instance, the speed of light could change. So there was a huge uh, effort into maximizing the flow of information between New York and Chicago. Just because you can save a few milliseconds, that means you can be the first one to fill the order and now be kind of <laughs> getting pennies uh, and more than, than your neighbor. Now, options market happens in Uniswap. Spot trading happens in Uniswap. If you have futures like a perpetual protocol-like system that does use Uniswap V3 as well, you can have all of that within the same uh, ecosystem. That means that it's much more capital efficient as well. So final question on this. How is... Um development going are you running into any challenges or what what kind of stage are you at right now when can we uh when can we uh use this protocol yeah 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 so we're we're actively building it again i'm i'm on leave for my uh, assistant professor position since uh, i've been on leave since february so that i can fully concentrate on this so uh over the summer so we were i get at least would say 60% done with the smart contracts development i'm also involved in the ui design so that we want to make it so that it's an easy and user intuitive or user-friendly, I guess, uh, interface as well. Same way that Uniswap made it very simple to swap tokens. We want to create a similar uh, interface where you can see your payoff. You can drag, for instance, the strikes and see how it impacts the payoff right away. And that can be also how we can onboard more users by making it very easy to kind of buy options or sell options. And yeah, so we want to go to testnet maybe in um, four to six weeks where we're, we're kind of progressing super well. We With audits and everything, we've probably will launch in Q4. But yes, keep an eye open for testnet announcements. We'll, we'll, we'll be probably releasing something soon. Are you also working on like a, an enzyme that will select the right trades for me? 
with its like uh, biocomputer or something. Maybe. <laughs> so again, the, the there's always uh, brain versus computer. So you have machine learning tools that could help you uh, trade better. But again, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, of uh, brains versus uh, computers. At the end of the day, there's always a, a level of insight or a level of decision-making that is somewhat hard to, to code or, or extract. Awesome. Well, this, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, I want to be mindful of your time, but just a couple more kind of like big picture uh, crypto questions. Like it's, it's really, you know, refreshing when like markets are crazy to talk with someone who's really working on like the frontier of expanding the, the base layer of, of DeFi. Um, because I don't know, like one of my strong views is that like we've seen the, the biggest problems we have now are kind of this like veneer of centralization over DeFi or kind of like these incestuous loops between centralized and decentralized, right? Where, where a lot of the, the problems are, are going. Um, but I'd like, like to ask you, like, if you, you know, you're looking at DeFi, imagine you were a VC or had a big fund, like what are some of the, the big problems that you would like to see more DAOs or startups uh, attacking like within, within the crypto space? Yeah, so I, I think the um, of options would be my first choice, but we're working on it. I'd say that what maybe is difficult for TradFi people to understand, perhaps, is that everything is out in the open. If you your address is doxed, someone can see all the dump trades you've, you've made over the past year. And that could be kind of also a, a way to, uh, to limit user adoption, more or less. So anything that deals with privacy-focused or ZK rollups or any type of... Uh, even a privacy-focused um, AMM could be one way to kind of push this forward. Of course, there's, I don't think there's many people that work on this, but this is perhaps where, where the future is, go, is going, where we can still prove through the power of blockchain technologies that something happens. We don't have to kind of expose it so that for everyone to see, but if we can confirm that it's happening, then that's kind of one way to see it going. And again, overall, just any anything, anything that makes... Uh, makes it more accessible, makes it easier for for people to, to to kind of participate in this kind of burgeoning ecosystem. Again, the 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 it, it happens to be most applications are finance based because this is kind of the nature of blockchain, but there could be other applications, but we, we have kind of this opportunity to reinvent finance in some ways and make it more accessible or at least shape it in a way that is less restrictive. Again, I'm trading options in traditional finance on the side as a hobby, but if I want to sell a um, Amazon split, but if I wanted to sell an Amazon uh, put, for instance, I had to put up eighty thousand dollars just to to kind of as collateral so that you can back up my 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 put. So it was very difficult for me to trade on on these assets. Same thing with most assets; it's a hundred stocks lot, so it's very very limiting for the retail users. But then if you have again, instead of having a one huge gorilla trading, if you can have a thousand little monkeys, you'll get more capital efficiency as well. So any way we can kind of bring in more people, make the, the, the experience better, again, educational outreach, any ways that people can be onboarded to these kind of somewhat complex, but still tractable financial uh, activities, that would be kind of what where I would want to see happen. Awesome. And you hinted about this earlier, um, that there are even more layers that you see as possible to build on top of UniV3. Um, do you see any other interesting things besides options and futures coming down the coming down the road is like, you know, I think, you know, it would be awesome to be able to use 
these NFTs as collateral. I think there may be one or two protocols doing that, but I'm not sure. Or they're just they're just launching. But what do you see as kind of like the next chapter for things built on uh, Uniswap? Yeah, yeah. So at at least uh, where I see a lot of what's going on with even Uniswap or most protocols, it's more like an infrastructure. It's like TCP/IP. We create something and people can build on top. And I guess we, we, we have to thank Uniswap's openness as well. It's a very, very clean protocol and everybody can participate and build on top. So that's why I see this kind of going in the future. Again, if you have um, the options vaults, you can use Uniswap as the clearinghouse, but you can have a dynamic strategy there where you balance your vault as well. For instance, as you mentioned, you can lend or use your LP collateral to borrow or to kind of... Uh, back up your your or use as collateral i guess for other activities one thing i'd, I'd like to see is maybe um like a uh, an nft system uh, an nft amm but not necessarily for trading but an nft amm for uh, options again you can sell calls on an on a crypto punk you you can buy it if it goes above a certain price that that's kind of the, the type of activity that is uh, perhaps easy to do on the blockchain because if we were to do the same thing on a uh a, uh, in the real world, you would have to find a lawyer, an accountant. Everybody has to draft a contract. Now you could do it with a smart contract and you could use Uniswap or something similar to kind of uh, formalize the relationship there in the smart contract. But yeah, I think the, the users should also think creatively. And, and again, the same way that I approach Uniswap with this perspective of option seller, there might be someone else that comes in with a different perspective. But the, the idea is that because it's open source, everybody can participate. This is where, again, people have to kind of go in with their own ideas and then find perhaps uh, what they like most about the protocol and run with it. And then last question on um, AMMs, you know, like with uh, Terra and the stuff, you know, everyone's been watching uh, what's happening with Tether lately. Um, a lot of that action has been on Curve and and their stable swaps. And, you know, like there's been some more criticism of uh, being able to kind of like dial up the A factor and enforce uh, one-to-one peg very closely, even though, you know, an XYK AMM would be pushing the assets for their part. I don't know. Do you have any views on on the stuff that's been happening with stable coins? And if if Uni V3 is going to be kind of like a superior way to to trade stable coins, or is Curve still going to be the king in that area? Yeah, I do think that the, um, uh, again, you had like the the curve, like the three pool, four pool kind of debacle, but also the stake ETH happens on curve. I think any any protocol enforced peg is kind of manipulable or attackable in a way that is if if the user don't doesn't own uh, the peg themselves. What I mean is that you can change the 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 the, the whatever a factor to make it larger, but then everybody is impacted the same way. What I find beautiful with Uniswap v3 is that everybody can have their own assumption and they can actually create or have a strategy that matches that assumption. So I do think that, again, a concentrated liquidity is probably the, the final form of uh, of AMMs. And again, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not participating in Curve. Uh, and, and again, uh, because I don't trade the, the stable coins as well, but again, any any protocol enforced peg is 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 perhaps a an easy target for manipulation because you can you can you can kind of uh, have a, a a a less elastic response 
let's say, a Uniswap pool because now LPs can move away, they can rebalance, they can actually respond to the attack a little bit more forcefully than just waiting for it to, to die off. The the tokenomics are also, um, uh, what's the word? They stop your system from working, right? Because if you are having to split 50% of the fees out of every Uni V3 LP out to the protocol, then um, your whole options thing would be like way different because you'd have to have to deal with the fact that you're earning the native token in fees instead of the fees themselves, or that you have to hold the native token to, to earn the fees. Yes, yes. And and that's the... Um, w- w- I mean, of course, DeFi and, 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 and I guess blockchain is still young. I, w- I, would, I, I hope that uh, people will recognize like some tokens are more useful than others. Some tokens are extractive. Some are kind of... Uh, can expand the possibilities of a protocol. So yeah, so anything that is also, as you mentioned, Locking the users into keeping the token, locking the token, not selling the token will, will probably not last. Like if we want to be in there for 50 years, I think we have the opportunity to kind of rebuild the financial system in a way that is uh, more sustainable. And yes, the the the, the short term thinking probably will not will <laughs> likely only be there for the short term in the longer term protocols, longer term teams will hopefully have a more successful path forward. All right. Um, I know Hal has a uh, hard stop now, so unfortunately we'll have to leave it there. But Guillaume, this has been super interesting. I think everything you said has spurred a bunch of follow-up questions and and I can't wait. Um, Hopefully you'll uh, come back on when this launches and we can uh, do a walkthrough or something. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for the invitation. Again, I'll be more than happy to... uh... To tell you more about the the product once it's actually launched. For in the meantime, you can I guess uh, go on panoptic.xyz if you want to read the white paper, or follow me on Twitter if you want to get uh, the alphas of uh, <laughs> options tradings and Uniswap. Yeah, um, what do you want to give your Twitter so people can uh, know where to connect with you? Oh yeah, it's uh, G U I L underscore Lambert. So Guil Lambert, my name uh, on Uniswap, and yeah. Give me a follow. I sometimes tweet. Sometimes I tweet. Thanks uh, so much for your time and uh, can't wait for the launch. All right. Thanks very much, guys.